In last week's episode of As Yet Unexplained, we explored the mysterious case of the Somerton Man, whose body was found on a beach at Somerton Park, South Australia, in 1948. We examined the circumstances surrounding the discovery of the body, the clues that investigators found, and the many theories that have been proposed over the years to explain this strange case. In today's episode, and the second part of this investigation, we will delve deeper, exploring the latest developments and attempting to unravel the many mysteries that surround this intriguing and enigmatic case. We'll discuss the discovery of the brown suitcase found at the Adelaide Railway Station, which is believed to have belonged to the Somerton Man. We'll examine the contents of the suitcase and the significance of the items found within it. We'll also delve into the inquest into the Somerton Man's death, led by Coroner Thomas Erskine Cleland, and the testimony provided by Cedric Stanton Hicks, a professor of physiology and pharmacology at the University of Adelaide. Hicks provided crucial information about the potential lethal effects of certain drugs, shedding light on the possible cause of the Somerton man's death. Join us as we continue to explore this fascinating case and attempt to unravel the truth behind the mystery of the Somerton Man. We encourage our listeners to approach this episode with sensitivity and respect towards the real person behind the mystery, whose tragic end continues to capture the imagination of people around the world. Before we begin in earnest, we'd like to give a brief warning. The subject matter we'll be discussing in this episode may contain unsettling descriptions and could be distressing for some listeners. We understand that some of our listeners may find the contents of this episode difficult to hear, and we advise caution if you are easily affected by such topics. However, if you're feeling brave and curious, please sit back and immerse yourself in this mysterious and captivating tale. Welcome to As Yet Unexplained, where we delve into the most fascinating mysteries of the strange, unexplained and mysterious from all around the world. As we explore this case, we want to remind our audience that with every story there are real people affected. While we find the mystery of the Somerton Man intriguing, it is crucial to remember that this was a human being who met a tragic end. We appreciate your support and would like to take this opportunity to thank you for tuning into this episode of our podcast. If you found this episode interesting, we'd love for you to like, subscribe or leave a review on your preferred platform to help us continue to create the content you enjoy. 
Additionally, we are eager to hear your thoughts and insights on this case. Perhaps you have a theory that we haven't explored, or you have additional information that could shed light on this mystery. We encourage you to share your ideas with us in the comments or through our social media channels. Early reported identification. On the 3rd of December 1948, E.C. Johnson identified himself as the likely victim at a police station. It was a day after the advertiser named him as a potential identification. However, Johnson's claim did not put a stop to the investigation. In fact, it only intensified public interest in finding the true identity of the dead man. The following day, The News published a photograph of the deceased on its front page, which led to even more calls from members of the public about his possible identity. The police, meanwhile, were pursuing a new lead. On the 5th of December, they searched through military records after a man claimed to have had a drink with a person resembling the dead man at a hotel in Glenelg on the 13th of November. The mysterious man supposedly produced a military pension card bearing the name Solomon's Son. This new information opened up a whole new avenue of investigation for the police and they began to delve deeper into the military records, trying to find any possible connection between the deceased man and the name on the pension card. Several people were presented with the body in an attempt to identify him. Two of them identified the body as that of Robert Walsh, a 63-year-old former woodcutter who had left Adelaide several months earlier to buy sheep in Queensland, but had failed to return at Christmas as planned. However, the identification was later retracted by one of the witnesses after a closer examination of the body revealed that the dead man did not have a particular scar that Welsh had. The third person, James Mack, initially could not identify the body, but an hour later he contacted police to claim that it was Walsh, citing differences in the hair colour as the reason for his initial doubt. Despite the identification, the police were sceptical of the claim, believing Walsh to be too old to be the dead man. The police did state that the body was consistent with that of a man who had been a woodcutter, although the state of the man's hands indicated he had not cut any wood for at least 18 months. This led investigators to believe that the deceased man may have been a vagrant or a transient worker who had been travelling through the area. By early February 1949, there had been a series of mistaken identifications of the body. Two Darwin men initially believed that the body was that of a friend of theirs, while others thought it was a missing station worker, a worker on a steamship, or a Swedish man. These varied and often conflicting identifications made the investigation all the more difficult for detectives. Despite the confusion, 
Detectives initially believed the man was from Victoria due to the similarity of the laundry marks of those used by several dry cleaning firms in Melbourne. Following publication of the man's photograph in Victoria, 28 people claimed to know his identity, but Victoria detectives disproved all the claims and said that other investigations indicated it was unlikely that he was from Victoria. One suspect, a seaman named Tommy Reed from the SS Cycle, was thought to be the dead man. However, after some of his shipmates viewed the body at the morgue, they stated categorically that the corpse was not that of Reed. This added to the mystery and frustration of the investigation. By November 1953, police announced that they had recently received the 251st solution to the identity of the body from members of the public who claimed to have met or known him. Despite this, the investigation still yielded no clear answers. The only clue of any value remained the clothing that the man wore, leaving investigators to wonder about the circumstances surrounding the man's death and ultimate identity. Manganson family. According to reports from the time, there may have been a connection between the death of a two-year-old Clive Manganson and the Somerton Man case. Clive's body was found in a sack in the Largs Bay Sand Hills, with his father found unconscious next to him after the two had been missing for four days. The coroner could not determine the cause of Clive's death, though it was not believed to be natural. This has led some to speculate that there may be a link to the Somerton Man case, which happened six months earlier. The contents of Clive's stomach were sent for government analysis, which may provide more information. The death of Clive Manganson adds another layer of intrigue to the already perplexing case of the Somerton Man. After Clive Manganson was found dead, his mother, Roma Manganson, was interviewed by the police because of harassment she had experienced. She reported being threatened by a masked man who drove a cream car and almost ran her over outside her house in Largs North. Manganson stated that the car stopped and a man with a khaki handkerchief over his face warned her to keep away from the police or else. A similar-looking man was also seen lurking around her house. Manganson believed this situation could be related to her husband's attempt to identify the Somerton man. Her husband had worked with Carl Thompson in Renmark, in 1939, and believed the Somerton man to be Thompson. Manganson was concerned that her husband's identification attempts had angered someone who wanted to keep the Somerton man's identity a secret. Soon after being interviewed by the police over her harassment, Manganson collapsed and required medical treatment. Her condition was a direct result of the stress caused by the harassment and the fear of her family's safety. 
J.M. Gower, secretary of the Largs North Progress Association, has also actively involved in the investigation of this case. However, his involvement has not been well received by some individuals who have resorted to making anonymous phone calls, threatening him and his family. Similarly, A. H. Curtis, the acting mayor of Port Adelaide, has also received similar threats for trying to interfere with the case. The police had investigated these calls, but it was suspected that they may be a hoax. In fact, there is reason to believe that this is the same person who had been terrorising Manganson. Needless to say, the residents of the area were extremely worried about the safety of their loved ones. International Interest In the case of the Summerton Man, the South Australian police worked with law enforcement agencies around the world to share information and follow up on leads. This likely involved sending letters, telegrams and making phone calls to other agencies. The FBI was also consulted, but they were unable to match the man's fingerprints with any criminals in their database. Scotland Yard was also involved, but they too were unable to provide new information. Despite these efforts, the case still remains unsolved, and the man's identity unknown. Post-inquest, pre-2009 The body of the unknown man was buried in Adelaide West Terrace Cemetery, and the service was conducted by the Salvation Army, paid for by the South Australian Grandstand Bookmakers Association to prevent a pauper's burial. Years later, flowers began appearing on the grave, and a woman seen leaving the cemetery claimed to know nothing of the man. Ina Harvey receptionist at the Strathmore Hotel opposite Adelaide Railway Station, revealed that a strange man had stayed in room 21 or 23 for a few days around the time of the death, checking out on the 30th of November 1948. She recalled that he was English-speaking and only carrying a small black case, not unlike one a musician or a doctor might carry. But when an employee looked within the case, a needle-like object was found inside. In 1959, E.B. Collins, an inmate of New Zealand's Wanganui prison, claimed to know the identity of the dead man. While Collins's claims were intriguing, there was no concrete evidence to support them, and they were largely dismissed by authorities. Many investigators believed that Collins had concocted the story in an attempt to gain attention or to seek revenge against his former employers. However, the story has remained popular among conspiracy theorists, who continue to believe that the Summerton Man was part of a larger espionage plot. From details known about the case, this is one theory of what happened the day the stranger died. 
After arriving in Adelaide, either from the country or interstate, he decided to check his suitcase into the railway cloakroom. He then bought a second-class single ticket to Henley Beach Station. For some unknown reason, without going onto the platform, he then changed his mind and got on a bus going to Glenelg, a little further south. While on the bus, he flicked through the copy of the Rubaiyat of Omar Khayyam he was carrying and came to the last page. Then he carefully tore out the words Tamim Shud and put that small piece of paper in his trouser pocket. He got off the bus at Glenelg and walked towards Mosley Square. He then got rid of the book by throwing it into the back of a parked car. In 1978, a documentary series called Inside Story produced a program about the Taman Shad case, titled The Summerton Beach Mystery. The program delved into the details of the case, exploring the various theories and potential leads. Reporter Stuart Littlemore conducted extensive research into the incident, including interviewing Boxall, who was unable to provide any new information and Paul Lawson, who created the plaster cast of the body. Lawson declined to answer a question about whether anybody had positively identified the body, raising further questions about the strange circumstances surrounding the case. Mr Boxall, what was the first you heard of all this mystery about the man on Summerton Beach? Well, very embarrassing business. I... Uh... <clears throat> I was in a pay parade at Ramwick Bus Depot when one uh, large policeman came up in a very loud voice demanded to know who I was, had I ever been in the army, had I ever been here, there and all the rest of it without any uh, warning. One of the uh, policemen said to me, did you hear about a body being found on the beach in Adelaide? And uh, well, quite candidly I wasn't sure because I wasn't particularly concerned about a body being found on the beach in Adelaide. What were they getting at? Did they think that the body was you or that you were somehow responsible for the body? What, what did you think? Well, <clears throat> the, the first impression I re received was that the gentleman from Adelaide was highly annoyed when, uh, after answering a few questions, they realised that I, uh, who I was, that uh, I was obviously the person uh, referred to by somebody in Adelaide. And uh, the fact that I was there and still alive uh, completely upset their apple cart and they were very displeased. Little Moore's investigation provided valuable insights into the mystery. In 1994, John Harbour Phillips, a prominent forensic pathologist, reviewed the case to determine the cause of death. After a thorough analysis of the evidence, Phillips concluded that the cause of death was digitalis toxicity. Digitalis is a medication that is commonly used to treat heart conditions, such as heart failure and arrhythmias. It is derived from the foxglove plant and works by increasing the strength and efficiency of the heart's contractions. However, digitalis can be toxic in high doses and can cause serious side effects, including nausea, vomiting and changes in heart rate. 
In the context of the Summer to Man case, it has been suggested that the digitalis may have been the poison used to cause his death, although this has not been confirmed. According to Phillips, the organs were engorged, which is consistent with the digitalis toxicity. Additionally, there was no macroscopic evidence that could account for the death. Further supporting the conclusion that it was digitalis toxicity that caused it. Former South Australian Chief Superintendent Len Brown, who worked on the case in the 1940s, stated that he believed that the man was from a country in the Warsaw Pact, which was a political and military alliance of several countries in Central and Eastern Europe during the Cold War. Brown's belief was based on the man's physical features such as his broad shoulders and large hands, which he believed were typical of people from that region. Although the police conducted a thorough investigation, they were ultimately unable to confirm the man's identity. The clothes are all Australian, as far as can be seen. Do you think he was an Australian? No. Uh, by his features, um, we were always under the impression that he was a European. But of course, the coat that he was wearing, this was examined by uh, one of Adelaide's uh, tailors at the time, and uh, he traced the origin of this coat back to America, American made, because of the way in which it was manufactured. Scientifically, of course, in those days, we didn't have a scientific branch. Uh, we had to rely on outside aid, like, uh, for instance, Paul Lawson, who made the plaster cast of the the body. The South Australian Police Historical Society holds the plaster bust, which contains strands of the man's hair. This bust has been an important piece of evidence in the case, providing clues as to the man's identity. However, any further attempts to identify the body have been hampered by the embalming formaldehyde, having destroyed much of the man's DNA. Formaldehyde can also damage DNA by causing cross-linking between the DNA strands, which makes it difficult to extract the sequenced DNA from the sample. Additionally, formaldehyde can cause fragmentation of the DNA, which can also make it difficult to analyse. As a result, the embalming process can significantly reduce the amount of quality of DNA available for analysis. This has made it difficult for investigators to use modern DNA analysis techniques to identify the man. Unfortunately, other key evidence no longer exists, such as the brown suitcase which was destroyed in 1986. This suitcase could have provided valuable clues as to the man's identity and any possible motive for his murder. In addition, witness statements have disappeared from the police file over the years, making it even more difficult for investigators to piece together the evidence leading up to the man's death.
The mysterious death of the Somerton man has been the subject of speculation for decades, with many theories posited to explain the circumstances surrounding his death. One of the most intriguing theories is that he was a spy, perhaps even an international agent involved in espionage activities that had taken him to Australia. This theory gained traction due to the location of two sites of interest to spies, the Radium Hill Uranium Mine and the Woomera Test Range, which were relatively close to Adelaide, where the Somerton Man was found. It has been suggested that he may have been involved in covert activities related to these sites, or perhaps was recruited as a spy due to his expertise in a relevant field. Interestingly, the Somerton Man's death coincided with a period of significant change in Australian security agencies. The following year saw the establishment of the Australian Security Intelligence Organisation, which marked a significant shift in the way the Australians approached issues of national security. It is possible that the Somerton Man's death played a role in this reorganisation, or that he was somehow connected to the changes that were taking place. The timing of the Somerton Man's death also coincided with a crackdown on Soviet espionage in Australia, which was revealed through intercepts of Soviet communications under the Verona Project. This suggests that there may have been broader geopolitical factors at play in the events surrounding the man's death, and that his story is part of a larger narrative of espionage and intrigue in the mid-20th century. Now, if we go back to Australian Army Lieutenant Alf Boxall, and according to reports, Boxall was heavily involved in intelligence work during and immediately after World War II. In fact, he was so heavily involved that he was asked about it in the 1978 television interview with Stuart Littlemore. During the interview, Littlemore asked Boxall if he had spoken to Jessica Ellen Joe Thompson about his intelligence work. Boxall replied that he had not, but was then asked by Littlemore if Harkness could have known anything about his work. Boxall replied that it was unlikely unless someone else had told her. Interestingly, Littlemore suggested in the interview that there might be an espionage connection to the unidentified dead man in Adelaide. However, Boxall dismissed the idea as melodramatic. Despite this, Boxall's army service record suggests he served initially in the 4th Water Transport Company before being seconded to the North Australian Observer Unit, the NAOU, a special operations unit. The unit was responsible for monitoring Japanese activity in the Pacific, particularly around Northern Australia and Papua New Guinea. The NAOU was staffed by a small group of highly trained soldiers who were skilled in jungle warfare and reconnaissance. The unit played a vital role in the defence of Northern Australia during the war and was disbanded in 1945. During his time with the NAOU, Boxall rapidly rose in rank, going from a lance corporal to a lieutenant within just three months. It is fascinating to consider how Boxall's intelligence work could have played a role in his rapid promotion and his eventual connection to the mysterious dead man in Adelaide. 
H.C. Reynolds Theory. In 2011, a woman from Adelaide discovered an identification card belonging to H.C. Reynolds in her father's possessions. This find led her to contact biological anthropologist Marche Hanenberg to investigate further. The card was issued in the United States to foreign seamen during World War I, and Hanenberg compared the ID photograph to that of the Somerton Man. While there were anatomical similarities in features like the nose, lips and eyes, Hennenberg believed that the close similarity of the ear shapes was the most reliable factor. He also found a mole on the cheek that was the same shape and in the same position on both photographs, which he called a unique identifier that would allow him to make a rare statement, positively identifying the Somerton man in a forensic case. This discovery was important because it added to the growing body of evidence surrounding the mysterious case. Furthermore, by using unique physical identifiers, forensic scientists were able to add a level of certainty to the identification of the Somerton Man, which had previously been difficult to confirm. Overall, the discovery of H.C. Reynolds's identification card presented a promising breakthrough in the ongoing investigation of the Somerton Man and it showcased the importance of using multiple sources of information for forensic analysis. On February the 28th, 1918, the United States issued a ID card with the number 58757. The card was issued to H.C. Reynolds, an 18-year-old who identified as British. However, despite extensive searches by the U.S. National Archives, the U.K. National Archives and the Australian War Memorial Research Centre, no records relating to H.C. Reynolds have ever been found. The mystery surrounding the identity of H.C. Reynolds has persisted over a century and has captured the attention of many researchers and investigators. There has been progress with the case in the passing years. The South Australia Police Major Crime Branch has announced that they will be investigating new information that has become known. This news has rekindled the public's interest in the case and has given hope that the identity of H.C. Reynolds might finally be uncovered. While the investigation is ongoing, some independent researchers have put forward a new theory. They believe that the ID card actually belonged to Horace Charles Reynolds, a man from Tasmania who passed away in 1953. If true, this would mean that the ID card could not have belonged to the Somerton Man. Jessica Thompson Relatives This is my mother. Were she alive today, would she have given me an interview? No. No. So you're as close as I get to this? Absolutely. And she'd probably be a bit miffed. Jessica would eventually marry Kate's dad, Prosper Thompson, and together they'd have Kate. They would become a typical post-war nuclear family in an ominous atomic age. And there was home life and there was outside life, but I grew up 
very much that there's a barrier between the two and the two you don't integrate. Today, Kate remembers a mother who was loving but secretive. So secretive, she now believes her mother was a Soviet spy. In an interview with 60 Minutes, Kate Thompson, daughter of Jessica and Prosper Thompson, claimed that her mother was the woman interviewed by the police and that she had lied to them about the identity of the Somerton man. Kate suggested that her mother and the Somerton man may have been spies. According to Kate, Jessica was fluent in Russian, although she didn't disclose to Kate where she had learned it or why. Jessica had taught English to migrants and was interested in communism. It is possible that the Somerton man was also a spy, although there is no concrete evidence to support this claim. Roma Egan and her daughter Rachel Egan were also interviewed on the television news programme 60 Minutes, in which they suggested that the Somerton man was actually Rachel's grandfather and Robin Thompson's father. This raised many questions and theories regarding the Somerton man's true identity. In order to investigate further, Roma and Rachel lodged an application with the Attorney General to have the Somerton man's body exhumed and DNA tested. This exhumation was supported by Derek Abbott, who wrote to the Attorney General expressing the importance of the federal government's policy of identifying soldiers in war graves to bring closure to their families. However, Kate Thompson, Robin's sister, opposed the exhumation on the grounds that it was disrespectful to her brother's memory. Why do you think Kate says, leave him in the ground, don't disturb everything, stop meddling in our family affairs? Well, I can appreciate where she's coming from because if you, you think that your brother is your full brother, then there's an emotional attachment to that, so I can appreciate that. But then in the end, she's not related to the Summerton man so, in fact, this young lady has more of a call than anyone else. Yes, she has. Do you feel that? This is your business. People tell you, get out of it, it's our business, but it's actually your business. You're the one. Pretty much. That, because the unidentified man, Summerton man, is potentially my grandfather. So that, to me, is, is um, very important. In October 2011, the Attorney-General of South Australia refused to exhume the body of the Somerton man. The decision was made on the grounds that there needed to be public interest reasons that went beyond curiosity or scientific interest. Although there were people in Europe who still believed that the man was a missing relative, an exhumation and finding the man's family grouping would not provide answers to relatives. This is because many war criminals changed their names and came to different countries during that period. It is possible that the Somerton man could have been one of these criminals who changed their identity, making it impossible for their relatives to track him down. However, in October 2019, the Attorney General, Vicky Chapman, granted approval for the body to be exhumed to extract DNA for analysis. 
This decision was made because of the growing interest in the case and the potential for new technology to provide answers. The interested parties agreed to cover the costs of the exhumation, which will involve a team of forensic scientists and experts in genealogy. The process of extracting DNA from the Summerton man's remains will be delicate and precise, as the samples needed to be preserved and uncontaminated. Once the DNA is extracted, it will be compared to databases of missing persons and potential relatives. One potential lead is a woman who believes that the Summerton man may be her grandfather, as we have previously stated. She has agreed to provide a DNA sample which will be compared to the unknown man's DNA to see if there is a match. This could potentially lead to a breakthrough in the case and provide closure to the family members. On May the 19th, 2021, a team of experts and investigators conducted the exhumation in South Australia as part of two ongoing operations, Operation Persevere and Operation Persist. These operations have been launched to investigate historical unidentified remains in the area. During the exhumation, the team found that the remains were actually buried deeper in the ground than they initially thought. This discovery has both excited and invigorated the authorities, as they believe that there is a good chance that they will be able to recover usable DNA from the remains. Dr Anne Coxon, a renowned forensic scientist from South Australia, expressed this optimism, stating that the technology available today is much more advanced than the techniques available in the late 1940s, when the body was originally discovered. The authorities have made it clear that they are committed to leaving no stone unturned in their quest to bring closure to this long-standing mystery. They are planning to use every possible method and resource at their disposal to unlock the secrets of these remains. Overall, this exhumation represents a significant step forward in the investigations being carried out by Operation Persevere and Operation Persist. It has provided new information and renewed hope to the authorities, who are working tirelessly to bring closure to this mystery. Abbott Investigation In March 2009, Professor Derek Abbott and his team from the University of Adelaide made significant strides in the investigation of the Summerton Man case. Their approach included cracking the code, proposing to exhume the body to test for DNA, and tracking down the barber-waxed cotton of the period to find packaging variations that may provide clues to the country where it was purchased. Abbott's team observed that the letter frequency of the code was considerably different from letters written down randomly leading them to theorise that the code was a one-time pad encryption algorithm. To get a statistical base for letter frequencies, copies of the Rubiat as well as the Talmud and Bible were being compared to the code using computers. However, the code's short length meant the investigators would require the exact edition of the book used. With the original copy lost in the 1950s, researchers have been searching for a Fitzgerald edition. Professor Henningberg from the University of Adelaide, after examining images of the Summerton man's ears, found that his upper ear hollow was larger than his lower ear hollow, 
a feature possessed by only 1-2% to of the Caucasian population. This unique physical trait was the first clue to unravelling the mystery of his identity. In May 2009, Abbott consulted with dental experts who concluded that the Somerton man had a hyperdontia, a rare genetic disorder of both lateral incisors, a feature present in only 2% of the general population. Hyperdontia is characterised by the absence of one or more teeth, or they may have teeth that are smaller than normal or are otherwise deformed. The condition can affect both primary and permanent teeth, and can range from mild to severe. This further sparked interest and speculation about his identity. In June 2010, Abbott obtained a photograph of Jessica Thompson's eldest son, Robin, which showed that he had both a larger upper ear hollow and lower ear hollow and hyperdontia. Like the unknown man. This led to the hypothesis that Robin Thompson may have been a child of either Boxall or the Somerton Man and passed off as Prosper Thompson's son. This speculation could be confirmed or eliminated by DNA testing. Professor Abbott believes that an exhumation and an autosomal DNA test could link the Somerton Man to a short list of surnames which, along with existing clues to the man's identity, would be the final piece of the puzzle. This would provide closure for the many people who have been fascinated by this mystery for over 70 years. In 2010, Abbott reached out to Rachel, the daughter of Roma Egan and Robin Thompson. Rachel had been adopted and grew up in New Zealand, far from her biological family. Abbott and Rachel eventually got married and now have a happy family of five, including three children. It's worth noting that Abbott and Rachel have a personal interest in the Somerton Man case. They believe that the unidentified man is somehow related to their family, and as a result, they have a painting of him hanging in their home. One avenue for finding the answers they were seeking is DNA analysis. Rachel's DNA was tested and a link was found with the grandparents of Prosper Thompson. This is an important lead, but it still does not provide a definitive answer. In 2013, Abbott released an artistic impression of the Somerton Man based on witness accounts of what he looked like. The image spread across the media, and people were once again talking about the enigmatic man found on the beach. Four years later, in 2017, three hairs were found on the plaster cast of the Somerton man's body. The hairs were submitted for DNA analysis, in hopes of finding a familial match. It was a promising development, but it would take another year for the results to come back. In 2018, mitochondrial DNA analysis revealed that the Somerton man belonged to haplogroup H4A1A1A. This haplogroup is possessed by only 1% of Europeans, making it a rare find. However, mitochondrial DNA is only inherited through the maternal line, so it can't be used to investigate a hereditary link between Rachel Egan and the Somerton man. Despite this setback, 
Abbott and Rachel continued to persevere in their quest for answers. Abbott claims to identify the man. According to recent studies conducted by Adelaide University Professor Derek Abbott, the identity of the Summerton Man has been a mystery for decades. However, based on genetic genealogy from DNA of the man's hair, the Summerton Man has now been recently identified as Carl Charles Webb. Webb was an electrical engineer and instrument maker who was born on November 16, 1905, in Melbourne, this discovery has shed light on the circumstances surrounding the mystery. Abbott claimed that the identification was made by using the strands of hair that were found in the plaster death mask made by the South Australian police in the 1940s. The hair was a crucial piece of evidence that ultimately led to the identification. Through the use of genetic genealogy, researchers were able to match the DNA found in the hair to the descendants of two first cousins of Webb. This indicates a high likelihood that the Summerton man was either Webb or possibly a brother of his. Carl Charles Webb was born on November 16, 1905, in Footscray, a suburb of Melbourne. He was the sixth child of a German-born man and an Australian woman. When he was 35 years old, he married Dorothy Jean Robertson, who was 21 years old at the time and listed as a foot specialist on their marriage certificate. According to Rebecca Opie of ABC, Webb's DNA results link him to the Summerton man. Abbott and Fitzpatrick have found extensive archival evidence supporting this identification, which provides further context to Webb's life and his potential connection to the mysterious Summerton Man. By exploring Webb's background and relationships, we can gain a deeper understanding of the possible circumstances surrounding the death. While the last mention of Webb in the historical record dates back to April 1947, when he left his wife, there is much more to his life story. In October 1951, three years after the Summerton Man's death, Dorothy placed a notice in the Age newspaper stating that she had begun divorce proceedings against Webb on the grounds of desertion. This suggests that their relationship had been strained for some time. By then, Dorothy had moved from Melbourne to Brute, a town 89 miles northeast of Adelaide. It's possible that Webb came to this state to try and find her, Abbott stated. This is just us drawing the dots. We cannot say for certain that this is the reason he came, but it seems logical. This raises the question of whether Webb had any connection to Thompson. There are other interesting details about Webb's life. Records showed that he enjoyed reading and writing poetry, as well as betting on horse races. He had a sister who lived in Melbourne, and was married to a man named Thomas Keane. This is likely the T. Keane whose name appears on the clothing in the Summerton Man's suitcase. 
As for the American origins of the attire, Abbott speculates that Keane bought the clothing second-hand from a GI stationed in Australia. Despite these fascinating details, there is still much that we do not know about Webb and his connection to the case. The researchers hope to address these mysteries and more through archival and genetic research. They are particularly interested in finding a photograph of Webb to help confirm his identity. Plenty of questions surrounding the case remain. Why did Webb come to Somerton Beach? What was his cause of death? Did he die by suicide? Was he murdered? What, if anything, was his connection to Thompson? Answers to some questions may come soon, while others may take years or may never be answered. Nevertheless, the researchers remain committed to unravelling the secrets of the Somerton Man mystery. Despite this new information, it is important to note that none of Webb's still-living relatives had ever met him in person, making it difficult to know much about his life. Furthermore, there were initially no known pre-death photographs of Webb. It remains to be seen if these findings will be verified by South Australian police, who are still investigating the case. Forensic Science South Australia, who also continue to investigate, have declined to comment on Abbott's findings. Despite the uncertainty, there is cautious optimism that this new information may finally provide a breakthrough in the case. The Somerton Man remains one of the most fascinating and mysterious unsolved cases in criminal history. For many decades, this enigmatic case has captured the attention of researchers, investigators and the general public, despite numerous investigations and a plethora of theories. Authorities have been unable to identify the man or determine the circumstances surrounding his death. However, the recent breakthroughs in DNA analysis and genetic genealogy provide renewed hope that answers may finally be found. The ongoing investigations by Operation Persevere and Operation Persist, as well as the work of independent researchers such as Professor Derek Abbott, have shed new light on the case and generated significant public interest. These recent developments have provided a glimmer of hope that the truth about the Somerton man's identity and death may finally be uncovered. While there is still much to be discovered about the Somerton man, these recent breakthroughs demonstrate that the case is far from closed, and that there may still be a breakthrough in the search for answers. The Somerton man is not just an unsolved mystery, but a real person who met a tragic end. His story is a reminder that behind every mystery, there are real people and real lives affected. As we conclude this episode, we would like to remind our listeners that with every mystery there are always victims, and we encourage our listeners to approach this topic with empathy and sensitivity. This case has been unsolved for 70 years, and it's important to remember that with every new piece of evidence we draw closer to the truth. We value your support and feedback, and welcome your thoughts, suggestions or ideas for future episodes. You can reach us via email or social media, and all past episodes are available for free on all major platforms, as well as on our website. Additionally, if you enjoyed the music that we have specially composed for this series, you can listen to it 
in its entirety on Bandcamp free of charge. Join us next week when we look at the Wem ghost photograph, which was taken in 1995 in the town of Wem, England. The photograph appears to show the ghostly figure of a young girl standing in front of a burning building. Despite much investigation and speculation, the authenticity of the photograph remains a mystery. Some believe it to be a genuine paranormal phenomenon, while others believe it to be a hoax. The photograph has been analysed extensively, with some experts claiming that it is a composite image, while others argue that it is genuine. The controversy surrounding the photograph has made it a popular topic of discussion among paranormal enthusiasts and sceptics alike. Once again, thanks for listening. UFOs, crime, folklore, mysteries, cryptid, horror, horror, paranormal, paranormal. UFOs, crime, crime, folklore, folklore. mysteries, cryptids. cryptids. The Occultaria of Albion investigates and explores a world that many believe does not exist. A world of the uncanny, where man's most ancient fears are allowed to run freely. It is not to be found in some faraway mystical land. This world is beneath your feet, at the shopping centre, across the road, and around the corner from where you live. Discover the world of the Occultaria of Albion, paranormal publications and podcasts. Go to occultariaofalbion.co.uk to discover more.